Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, I'm one of your hosts, and on today's episode, I kick off an amazing interview by making a mistake that I felt really embarrassed about. So there's a little teaser for you, try to find my embarrassing mistake. And the thing about this is that I actually knew the true and correct thing, but I just got nervous and I said it wrong. But I did not edit it out because today's episode, it's just too good. And I wanted to get all of our guests' words in there and because I knew that you could handle my fumble and my humanity. So today we're talking about reproductive rights and we're discussing the recent leak uh, about the upcoming Supreme Court decision regarding Roe versus Wade and what all of this has to do with being a Unitarian Universalist. Like, do you have to have a particular position on abortion to be a UU? And what does it mean for a Unitarian Universalist congregation or religious leader to take a position on abortion access when we're a faith that's all about freedom, freedom of conscience, a faith that welcomes and embraces difference? How, you know, what do we do with that tension there? Or is there a tension there? Our guests today are two of my favorite people to talk to about anything because they are just so incredibly smart and thoughtful. So today we'll be hearing from the Reverend Gretchen Haley, the lead minister here at Foothills, and also from Kelsey D'Astra. And Kelsey, and part of her work at Foothills, she's our communications director, but Kelsey also leads the 8th and ninth grade comprehensive human sexuality curriculum here at Foothills. It's a curriculum called Our Whole Lives, and the acronym for that is OWL. So when you hear us talking about OWL, that's what that is. It's this amazingly inclusive human sexuality curriculum. It was co-created actually by Unitarian Universalists and the United Church of Christ. And it's a curriculum that reaches, there are um, programs for as young as kindergarten and first graders all across the lifespan into adult seniors, older adults. And they're all, um, all of these curricula are there to help us live lives of love, authenticity, pleasure, and mutual respect that are grounded in our core values as Unitarian Universalists. So let's get started now with this conversation all about abortion, liberal religion, and reproductive freedoms with Reverend Gretchen and Kelsey. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Gretchen. It's Hi. good to be in the online space with you this afternoon. With you too. Happy to be <laughs> So we're getting together to have a conversation around reproductive rights and how that intersects with faith, spirituality, and what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. And we're recording this conversation uh, about a month after that leak around the Supreme Court's draft decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, which would make, which would mean that abortion would not be legal uh, on a federal level throughout the United States. And I wanted to start our conversation just by asking you on a personal level, when you got that news a month ago, uh, how did you receive it? What did you feel? Where did your brain go? What was that like for you? Sort of cut you off. I'm sorry earlier, Elaine, but um, 
I was trying to just clarify that it, um, it's not that it makes it illegal. Oh yeah. That it's no longer a constitutionally protected, right. 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 And therefore individual States can have the right to do whatever they think is right. Right. And which is one of the complex things about this shift is that in some, depending on where you live, it will have significantly different consequences. And, um, so I, that goes to my answer, which is, first of all, I was really thankful that we live in a state where that is protected and, um, where, um, a lot of people have done a lot of groundwork for a long time to get us to that place, which, um, because they anticipated that this ruling would be coming. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt a lot of gratitude and also a lot of grief um, for all of the many people, particularly um, working class people who live in other areas who this would significantly affect. I felt pain for their families, for their body, for their bodily autonomy. Um, and for the, like, just overall for all of us who live in bodies, um, where pregnancy is possible that our own agency and capacity to navigate these extremely complex questions were not a guaranteed right. And which is what that feels like to be a person where your government is not willing to protect that right. Um, and I think that, that that's, it's a, it's one of those that lives at a really subconscious level that you, that, um, of what it means to, to live in a, um, in a society where you're just not fully respected and, um, given that kind of autonomy. Mm-hmm. So that was a kind of, I didn't feel any surprise. Mm-hmm. I, I was not, there was nothing surprising about it. Maybe shocking in a certain way. Cause it's like, oh gosh, it's finally here. But, um, I feel like every activist I've ever talked to has been talking about this for, you know, the writing's been on the wall for many years. That this is where we were headed. So especially with the um, most recent Supreme court nominees, it was pretty clear that we were headed for this. Mm-hmm. Thanks Gretchen. How about you, Kelsey? I shared Gretchen's reaction that I wasn't really surprised per se. Um, Also just to add, so there are 13 states that currently have trigger laws in effect. Trigger law being that if Roe is overturned, abortion will immediately be banned in the first and second trimester. A few of those states have some exceptions carved out, but most uh, do not. Um, so there, there will be an immediate uh, impact in multiple states affecting um, tens of millions of, of Americans. Um, I, I uh, reacted almost like as human beings, we have all these little, you know, kind of pillars that support us, these little safety nets that exist in place, whether it's from our family, our our local community, our national government, these little things that offer us this sense of stability and safety that if 
if something unplanned were to happen, we have this safety net here, this safety net here. And some of us certainly have, you know, have the privilege of having significantly more than others in the in the systems we exist. And it felt like one of those safety nets was was cut. Suddenly. Mm -hmm. That if something were to happen, if I were, as someone who, who does not want to have biological children, um, my own biological children, if something, uh, you know, were to happen in an unintended pregnancy, I'm grateful to live in Colorado where that, where that right to choose will likely be protected. But if I were to go live somewhere else, um, for so many other people who can get pregnant, um, that, that added safety net was just cut away. Um, and so it was a very unsteadying sensation and a very, um, uh, sort of a sense of being off, off kilter for a moment. Um, and I want to lift up what Gretchen said about, you know, especially for people who are lower income, um, for people who maybe live in highly rural areas with less access to transportation, um, those that federal protection may have been the the only safety net standing between them and um, not having having a choice over their own body. So I can only imagine how unsteadying and um, frightening that would be to have that cut away. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kelsey. Yeah, you know, I want to add one more one more reaction I had, which I think is I don't know, maybe you'll. This is too controversial to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is I had just a little bit of relief and that like we've been in this fight, a binary fight for so long. And we've spent like in Colorado, we've fought measures of like to try like every, every year we've had to like push back on people trying to chip away at the right to choose. And so much time and money has been put into that fight. And like, it's like, like I think about how much, um, turnout power the right gets, um, just by activating this question of, can we get additional Supreme court judges who will uh, turn over row? And, there's just a piece of me that was like, well, okay, maybe we get to have a different conversation now. And maybe we get to put our effort towards something else. Now I don't like, I don't, doesn't take away from anything else that I said. It just, there's just a little piece of me that's like, you know, this has been a polarized conversation for so long and it results in so much um, inability to move on any other front. So maybe we get to imagine something else. And we all knew this, this was coming. So okay, there's a line in the sand. It happened. So now what are we going to do? And there are lots of activists who are leading the way into what that is. And it's not a simple, um, no more access to abortion. And so just being clear, like, okay, there's another imaginative path here and let's try to get, I don't know, just, I think about how many, how many resources have gone into this. And so there's just a piece of me that was a little bit like, all right, Mm-hmm. let's, let's figure out what's next. I was, I was just going to extrapolate onto what Gretchen said by saying, I think she brings up such a good point about how it's been this binary conversation around, um, abortion, which has been framed by you're either 
pro-life, we'll call it slash anti-abortion, or you are pro-choice. Um, but, and so you are pro having access to abortion when in reality, if you're talking about life, choice, autonomy, uh, freedom to determine your own path, um, there are so many other pieces than just whether or not you can access an abortion. And that is a very, very important piece. But if you have a baby and then cannot access childcare, that infringes on your freedom and ability to follow your path. If you um, uh, cannot uh, access you know, medical care, uh, food, housing security, there are all these other things that lead to a robust life where you can exercise your sacred autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I agree that this could be an opportunity to widen the conversation of what does it mean to create a society where, where there is true choice, not just in whether or not you're having an abortion or can access an abortion, but also maybe your choices you want to have the child and you can make that choice because now you have societal supports to empower you in that choice as well. Um, so there's a larger broadening conversation, but what does choice and autonomy really mean beyond just that abortion question? Absolutely. Thank you, Kelsey. So we sent out, Foothill sent out a letter in response to this leak, kind of um, naming what happened, holding people's feelings and experiences, and offering resources and invitations to get involved, different ways to support uh, reproductive rights locally and nationally. And this is something we mentioned in our newsletter and we mentioned it from the pulpit and we got some pushback. People were wondering, what do reproductive rights have to do with what we're doing together at church? And in a faith tradition like Unitarian Universalism that is so grounded in embracing theological diversity and you know, welcoming and affirming different viewpoints and different lived experiences, how is this something that Foothills could even, or you know, a, a minister, a UU minister could even have a position on? Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Gretchen, what are you thinking? So Unitarian Universalism has had a long history of making national statements and stances around reproductive justice at a, um, an association level. And so I think I'm tracing it back to 1987 as the first date where the General Assembly of Unitarian Universalism came out to say that it, as a denomination, we stand for the right for, um, to choose. And so, first of all, I just, I, I name that because I think it's important to know there is a very long history amongst our association of, um, of acknowledging this right as an, a part of the inherent worth and dignity um, piece of our principles. So, um, and I, I, I lift it up also because I think um, there's a piece in writing that statement that to be honest, I was a little bit taking for granted mm -hmm. that Unitarian Universalists have come to some consensus. 
on this. And that, of course, is a flawed assumption. Um, we always have more diversity among us than we um, fully realize. Um, and we have more diversity within each of us than we ever fully realize. So um, I, I think to answer your bigger question, oh, and then the question of, um, you know, why, the why of why does it matter? I, I think that we've had a, we are not a religious body or tradition that takes, um, that imagines that we are um, sp- spiritual and then separately have a body. You know, we are, we, we understand the body as an, like an integrated part of our spiritual lives and our physical body and how our physical body is able to move through the world is integrated into um, what it means to be a whole and healthy person. And so it makes sense that we have, we have all kinds of commitments um, around that have to do with the physical body Mm -hmm. um, and how our bodies show up in the world, including um, notions of, you know, how we are treated as workers or um, our commitment to uh, healthcare And in this case, we like one of the core commitments here is integrated to our sense of um, all people as having full, full agency and capacity over their, their whole, over their bodies. And um, that that's a key part of what, like I said, what it means to have an inherent worth. So I think it feels like I said, kind of, I, I begin to take it for granted, but it is good to parse it out. Um, and it'd be good to hear a little bit from Kelsey's perspective as an, um, from the owl end of things, because I think owl and which is our whole lives, our reproductive justice curriculum, I mean, reproductive health curriculum, um, and sexuality education, that that's a big commitment, a big thing that we do as, um, a faith movement and a big passion of Kelsey's. Yes. So, um, our whole lives uh, takes a really comprehensive approach and holistic approach to sexuality education. Um, any, everything from sexual identity to relationship communication skills, uh, within friendships to consent education, um, and reproductive rights. And it's all grounded in many different UU values, including that we fiercely and unequivocally affirm uh, that we each have have bodily autonomy. And part of OWL is not only to affirm that value, that sacred agency and autonomy that we each have over our whole selves um, and to honor that in others, but it offers practical knowledge and tools to to exercise that value so it's one thing right to know or to say oh yes we we believe everyone has inherent worth we believe everyone has this sacred agency and then it's another thing to actually empower children youth even other adults to exercise that agency in a society in a world that that sometimes attempts to to strip that away um, and also to then honor that in others. And so for, for me with 
reproductive rights, it really can't be separated out from, from other ways that we affirm that, whether it's someone's right to, uh, to be their true gender identity um, and to exercise gender affirming healthcare. It can't be separated out from, uh, for example, con consent, uh, making sure that someone you're in a relationship with or interacting with is consenting to anything from a hug to, to sexual activity. Um, similarly with reproductive rights, um, you are taking that autonomy to decide the path that your own body takes, whether or not to, to carry a fetus to term. Um, and so it all is linked together in OWL and founded in this idea of our sacred worth and dignity, our agency and our, our autonomy over our own whole selves um, and the, the respect of that in others. So this isn't to me through that OWL perspective, just a conversation about reproductive rights or abortion. This is a conversation about how do our other value, how do these values that we affirm in our faith support reproductive rights mm -hmm. in connection with all of these other things. It's not separate. Um, in OWL, we have these circles of sexuality, um, sexual identity, intimacy, sensuality, sexualization, and sexual health and reproduction. And when we visualize it for the kids we teach, at the center of all of those is, is values. So ultimately, it is not a surface level. Okay, well, it's sort of the liberal thing to support being pro-choice. So that's what we support. It is deeply enmeshed in, in these core values of what it means to be you, you. I also, I, I didn't address the, the, you didn't ask this specifically, but I, I want to go back to your, the way you phrased it, which is pushback about the letter or the statement that we wrote. And um, what I, one of those pushback, I, I didn't actually myself didn't get any pushback about whether it was an appropriate topic. Mm -hmm. Um, it was more, I got a couple of questions around how should, why should we assume that everyone here is pro-choice and what does that mean to make that assumption? Um, and so I, I just, I, I responded to a few of those that wrote to me directly about that question. Um, first of all, acknowledging that that's right. As I said before, that um, not everybody, you're right. Not everybody is mm -hmm. that is in uh, connected to foothills. And I do think that there are, I, I think from a moral and theological perspective, um, the question of what, what does life mean and what, what, what constitutes human life is a very complex question that there is actually not universal agreement about across religious traditions. And um, a certain subgroup, actually a, a very particular slice of religious communities have come to a certain understanding about that, which is um, connected to um, like, a fetus and it's very first, um, like egg sperm moment, like that done life begins. <laughs> um, that is not universally understood. There's many other places where that is, um, considered to be where life begins. And so as 
as Unitarian Universalists, one of the things we really affirm is that people have the right to have those different um, understandings and that in a free society, we make space for people to exercise those different understandings. And we don't make laws based on um, a one particular religious understanding. And so I think partly like that, that that's when I've responded to folks, I think we have to, we have to lean back on our, on the sense that, that we recognize a full spectrum of the ways that um, his history and theology has come to understand what it means to be alive. And um, I know in seminary, for example, you could, there's like whole classes on that question is not even for Christians, a simple question. And so we want to live in a society that respects the fullness of that understanding and that does not simply accept one, one way. Um, and then um, the other thing that I wanted to lift up is that and I responded to one of our, one of the questions about that, this in this way, which is that, um, that if we, it, even if we accept that we think that abortion is not a good thing, if you would like to reduce abortions, Actually, investing in comprehensive sexuality education and contracept access to contraception is your best way to reduce abortions. And so you can there's um, studies globally about different approaches, and consistently it shows that that's the best approach. So it, it is a false um, security and a I think a false argument to say that that ending access to abortion, legal, legal abortion actually reduces abortion. It's a, it's, it's, it's a front, Mm -hmm. um, really for other, other objectives, which, um, as I tried to explain pretty calmly in my email, but I feel strongly about it. It's a front to control, particularly women's sexuality, but to control all people's sexuality from a certain frame of shame and patriarchy. So I, I think that just being able to name that quite, um, objectively, there's, there's actual, um, studies that show that if that, okay, let's say that you do disagree and that that's part of your stance, then let's agree that there's actually, there are really good ways to reduce abortion. And that is not actually, this is not actually the safest, best way to do that. Kelsey, I want to give you a chance to respond to that too. Yeah, I, I want to lift up that in Colorado, um, where Foothills is and where we we all live, um, there was an initiative put into place several years ago now, I think 20, mid-2010s, um, which significantly increased access to long-term birth control methods, especially for teenagers. Um, and it led to a, near, a fit, over 50% reduction in um, unintended teen pregnancies and almost a 50% reduction in teen um, abortions. So if the conversation is really about reducing abortion, there are many um, mechanisms in place that, that very clearly have that effect. Um, I want to lift up sort of what Gretchen uh, was was nodding at, which is ultimately the term choice in pro-choice, um, which is that to be pro-choice does not even necessarily mean that you yourself would choose to have an abortion in the face of an unintended pregnancy. To be pro-choice is to take the stance that we support 
just what it says that that choice that everyone should be empowered um, if they choose to proceed with the pregnancy to have access to health care, parenting support, um, safe uh, medical care for the birth, uh, as has been really prevalent lately, um, formula, things like that, access to those things. Um, or alternatively, if you choose to follow with adoption or abortion, that you have that choice as well. And I think oftentimes in the conversation, there is a conflation that happens where pro-choice means pro-abortion. Um, and that is not necessarily the case. For example, in the OWL curriculum, we uh, abortion is pr presented more as a sort of if your other methods fail or if something you know unexpected happens, then you have that option. Um, but we teach comprehensive uh, contraception as well. But the truth is we live in a society where unfortunately sometimes people are sexually assaulted, people are raped, um, sometimes birth control fails, condoms break, right? Sometimes things happen and, and people slip up and forget to use their contraception or don't use it sometimes. And um, if we embrace sort of the wholeness of, of human beings and, our, and the reality of our society, then that, and we also embrace um, that people have the right to determine their own path, then we, in my view, you have to come to the conclusion that you uh, support people's choices, um, even if that includes abortion, even if you yourself would not make that choice. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about what it means to talk about sexuality in such a comprehensive way at church and in such a values grounded way, whether it's an owl or kind of in our greater congregational conversation. And I just wonder if there are particular stories or experiences that you've had personally um, that have helped reinforce for you how important it is to be able to talk about sexuality and how it intersects with our core values. I can start just because I've, I've recently had, you know, many, uh, we just wrapped up our almost eight month long owl course. Um, and there's a piece that I think there's of course the very important and, and somewhat obvious piece of you're empowering these particular children that are in the class um, to advocate for themselves, to respect others, to be able to resource themselves, um, everything again, from how to communicate uh, and form friendships and relate and romantic relationships to reproductive rights and affirming uh, diverse gender identities. But there's this other piece, which is you are also um, through resourcing and helping these children cultivate these values-based use or you're coupling the values with this practical knowledge you're also in many ways resourcing a whole community um i can't even tell you almost every single week a kid would come up i should say youth because they're really eighth and ninth graders um a youth would come up and ask a question or put in the question box you know i have a friend who's who's going through x y and z um and it could be something as simple as um 
someone is uh, they have a crush on someone and they they don't know you know how to how to talk to them about it respectfully or how to bring it up to to some very you know serious things where maybe there's an adult that's behaving inappropriately towards a, a friend of theirs um and and you're cultivating conversations between youth and adults then about how to how to handle these things how to help their friends um they'll certainly meet people throughout their lives or have partners who may not have gone through OWL and then they can bring these lessons about consent and safety to those relationships. They can share them with their friends. Um, and you're also teaching in a society where talking about sex and sexuality can be so taboo and yet it's such a huge part of all of our beings and lives, you're creating an environment where you're teaching kids that it's okay to talk about those things, especially with trusted adults. And when you teach children that, and I, I talk about kids because I teach OWL, but when you create those safe environments for kids to come to you with, you know, this is happening with a friend of mine, or this is happening with me, and, and they can talk to you and get help and get guidance. You're also creating an environment and creating a trend where then when they get older and they have their own families, they have partners, you're cultivating a community and a um, way of being that's based in honest communication. And when you have honest communication and transparency, when you go to talk about where you need help with things, if something is making you uncomfortable, if something is, you know, uh, a little off in a relationship or your feelings were hurt, or you're not comfortable with something sexually, then you're also creating an environment of, of just stronger relationships in general. That was a very long-winded way of really saying kind of two different things. The first is that, um, these, these kids are bringing things like consent, uh, like safety. Like I said, if, if, uh, if one of their friends has maybe an adult who's acting inappropriately towards them, they, and they're, they're not sure what to do that those kids who took owl can then say, no, this is wrong. Like your gut is correct. Like, let's go talk to someone. So there's a huge safety component, um, to that, or that person did this thing to you, like that's sexual assault. Let's go you know, the authorities or go to an adult. So there's a huge safety component. And then it also creates this overall culture of, of transparency, honesty, and open communication. I asked the owl kids at the end of the session, I was like, what is like the one thing that was the biggest takeaway that I would want you to take away? And they all were like open communication like with your partners, with your families, with your friends. Um, and so it creates an overall environment of, of transparency that in turn feeds things like safety, like respect, like consent. Mm -hmm. And those qualities stem out beyond just sex and sexuality and relationships into every aspect of life. Gretchen, is there anything you want to add about what you, I don't know whether it's something personal or just more general um, why it feels so important to have OWL and to have conversations around sexuality and gender at church and reproductive rights. I was thinking about um, my own experience kind of uh, growing up. So I grew up Catholic and um, I know in some Catholic settings that means no sex ed, but that was not the case for mine. Um, I grew up in a kind of like post Vatican II Catholic school. So I went to K K through eight Catholic school and we had sex ed every year. 
Um, and, but what that meant was it was called family life. And it was really taught in the context of sex is for, is, is a gift from God, um, meant for marriage and for procreation. Mm-hmm. And what that means, I think ultimately, um, first of all, that we did receive a lot of good education, like a lot of information about bodies. That was good. And it all came with a real, um, like a, a serving of shame <laughs> thrown on top for anything that is, that was associated with sex as pleasure or, um, for non-procreative non-marriage related, um, means. <laughs> so that, I think like that, um, to compare that to what my kids who are teenagers now, um, have gone through and understand is their sex ed- education and understanding of sexuality. Um, mostly, first of all, it really pushes me as a parent because, um, I have really deeply ingrained shame lessons, um, like that, that you should just be like, like pair sexuality with shame, even though I don't intellectually believe that, um, serve a church where that's like basically the opposite of that now, but it's, it's so deeply ingrained. And so watching my kids and how they move through, um, sexuality, how they understand sexuality, it, it awakens me to how, um, how differently I, I came to understand how much undoing I've had to do, um, as an adult and, um, how, and I think I wasn't even on a very far end of spectrum of shame. And so just in our society, how much sexuality is connected to shame, which I really do think is connected to the question around abortion and reproductive choice, Mm -hmm. because I think we all carry a lot of messages through the culture, through religion, through our families about sexuality being a source of potential shame and especially, um, anything that's for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have a notion of pleasure as being connected to shame. And so something I really value in our, um, that I, I, I didn't hear in what you said, Kelsey, is that, that in our curriculum, pleasure is brought up and it's a point of the whole, like what you think sexuality might be about, you learn that and that that's not considered shameful. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually that's very natural and it's good. It's like a, like a good thing. And that's, I think just what a, what a, an incredible, uh, incredibly liberating, um, stance that is what a gift to give to our children to grow up with that mindset, what a gift, gift to give to their future partners or current partners. Um, you know, that's just, it's very, I, 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 th- I think we really underestimate what a radical, um, shift that is compared to the ways that most people grow up and what, and how powerful it could be as a tool mm-hmm. of liberation for all of us. Yeah, we do. Um, we talk a lot about pleasure, both, both for yourself through, through, um, masturbation or, or other forms of self-stimulation and also with a partner. And when we talk about pleasure with a partner, we talk a lot about, um, uh, 
sort of the overarching principles. So of course we talk about, you know, anatomy, like what, what are erogenous zones, things like that. Um, so that can just know their own bodies or bodies of a potential partner. Um, but, but it's more so about those kind of principles that stem even beyond sex in a relationship, like talking with a partner, what, what do you like, what do you need to feel safe? Um, these things that are so important to pleasurable sex, but also are super important um, in every aspect mm-hmm. of a partnership or relationship. Um, and so I think, again, that's, that's part of that values-based piece that while we may be today, we're talking about, you know, uh, what does sexual intercourse like look like? What is that? Um, the principles that are underlying it, they always have these tendrils that can enrich every aspect, um, of a life. And I, I just want to really quickly, um, add on to something Gretchen, you made the point that shame um, is so intrinsically tied to sex and that it's so kind of radical to separate those two things, which we do in OWL. But I also want to lift up that I think, especially in a liberal community, there might be those, or I've even, you know, had parents and such say, well, you know, I don't know if my kid really needs the, like, uh, you know, a part, part that's about sexuality, uh, diverse sexualities. Like we're a very liberal affirming household. They, they already know that. And that's true. And um, so I took OWL as an eighth grader. My parents are very liberal, always had lots of gay friends. Um, and when I was in fifth grade, I identify as bisexual. When I was in fifth grade, I had my first crush on a girl. None of my parents' friends, they were, you were either straight or gay, right? It was very binary. Both were great, but you were either straight or gay. And so when I went from having a crush on a boy to suddenly having a crush on a girl, I thought something was wrong because it wasn't either or. And I remember sitting there, I was probably actually might've been in sixth grade, like crying and crying and crying. And I wouldn't tell my parents what was wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And then OWL, when I was in eighth grade, was the first time where it was explicitly affirmed that people can be on sort of a spectrum, that sexual orientation is a spectrum, that gender identity is a spectrum. Um, And I think I I share that story because kids and teenagers, not all kids and teenagers, many kids and teenagers will go to kind of the worst place. Um, or assume the worst about themselves, um, or will, if something is a, is any sort of deviation from what's been presented to them, um, will think something is wrong with them. And so to have an environment where everything is so explicitly talked about and affirmed is really important, even in liberal communities or a city like Fort Collins, where, I mean, we certainly have, have some issues, but for the, for the most part, it's a, it's an LGBT affirming city. Um, to have that sort of explicit affirmation for kids, this is normal. Like you are beautiful and worthy, your wholeness, your fullness, your fuzziness as you shift and change. Um, those are all beautiful, natural, normal things is so empowering and important because kids won't always just absorb those messages through like osmosis of being in the community. They need to be explicitly affirmed as human beings in their wholeness. That is 
I really, I feel inspired and touched by that, Kelsey. And just also, it's really beautiful to hear all the different levels. I don't know. I'm loving hearing about the non-judgmental and accepting mode of OWL. It's very touching and it's inspiring to me. And I wonder as we dream about the future and we imagine our future as a congregation, what are your hopes and dreams for how Foothills might also move in response to whatever unfolds with Roe versus Wade? So I have a few things um, that already are kind of in the works. Um, So we have a group of, I wanna say maybe six or seven people that responded to my question of, do you wanna help us get started on some reproductive justice efforts um, in response to this? Um, it's, you know, slow going, which is, that's kind of how it, in the beginning stages of trying to form a new team, it's how it always is. And, um, so, but that's like, in some ways that's good. Cause it means like you'd start slow so you can build a strong foundation. So some of the stuff they've been doing is just getting to know who's out there already doing work, um, so that we can just grow education amongst our people about, about what's happening in response to the end of row, um, what's already happening in terms of uh, reproductive justice in Northern Colorado and in, um, in across the state of Colorado um, and across the entire universalism. And one of the big um, moves we're trying to make is uh, growing in our partnership with the UU congregation in Casper, Wyoming, where the Reverend Leslie Key is the minister. Um, they have recently... Um, been working to start, Leslie in particular, but with support from um, folks in our congregation, working to support a new clinic that provides abortion in Casper. And part of the effort is to get that up and running um, before the end of row, because it it provides some legal uh, way to push back against um, the row and the um, trigger, trigger law in Wyoming. So Um, however, they did just experience some arson, um, as a part of starting. And so they're now trying to, um, keep, keep moving forward, but, um, our little team of folks are starting to help think about like, what are some fundraising moves we could do? How can we provide, um, some support, moral support to that clinic? Um, it's our, you know, what, like the, one of the nearest areas that will be very impacted by, um, this decision, and then also beginning to establish a relationship so that if there are, if it, if it does mean the end of abortion access in that area, then we can help be a support of um, bringing folks to Colorado and, and receiving greater access to full health care. Um, so I think that's, that's one just from an activist perspective and the kind of the bigger moves. Activist is kind of the wrong word because I, I think there's a deep pastoral partnership response and what I'm, what I just described with Leslie and that congregation and just to be a good partner of kind of following their lead and what they're looking for in a very different context. And our neighbors right there that are doing really uh, courageous and important work in their own state. So I think that's really important. And then the other thing, and um, I promise I'll let Kelsey tell her dreams, but the other thing that I, I really has long been a dream and we just, we don't have the funds um, to make it possible, but we've always imagined, like, I, I want to say for the last 10 years, I've been at Foothills almost 10 years. And over the last 10 years, I've heard repeatedly, I wish we could offer OWL 
more comprehensively as an outreach tool mm-hmm. and, and that we could partner with other organizations to, to offer it more broadly in the community and to partner with Plymouth UCC. It's a, it's a curriculum that was developed with the UUA and the um, UCC, the United Church of Christ. And so they have, they do their own sort of versions. And so there's lots of opportunities. We could be partnering with them to think about reaching to CSU. I, I just wish we would, we would grow our offerings. It's such an incredible tool that we have. And we don't even offer regularly high school owl. We don't offer young adult owl. We don't offer adult and other senior owl, like older adult owl. Um, like those are all incredible offerings that I wish we were offering both for our own community and in the wider community, if we had the um, capacity to do that. So um, that's on my mind. And I really, I, I hope that we can find a way that this becomes like an inspiration for us to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I second that part. I would love to see, I mean, all of it, but I would love to see OWL grow. Um, I'd especially love to teach. Um, I feel a real call, especially towards the 11th, 12th grade OWL in part because in eighth, ninth grade, um, many of course, there's a diversity of experiences amongst the kids, but the purpose really is to kind of get them information before maybe a lot of their friends or before it's like a real, <laughs> they have to start making choices and discerning what their, you know, sexual relationships, romantic relationships, et cetera, might look like. Um, and by 11th, 12th grade, um, it, it feels very pressing whether whether the kids themselves I I will say in OWL we uh we don't use the term losing your virginity for reasons we could have a whole nother podcast about but um we use the term sexual debut and any sort of intercourse so anal vaginal oral or treated that's your sexual debut um many more uh 11th and and we, we encourage kids all the research shows the longer one waits to have their sexual debut uh typically the more satisfied that uh, satisfying that experience and healthy that experience will be. So OWL, uh, while very progressive sex education is not, you know, encouraging kids to just sort of willy-nilly decide when they're ready for things, there's a very clear lesson of discernment of waiting all of all of those aspects um and so by 11th 12th grade though right as an older teenager more of those kids have either had their sexual debut are thinking about having their sexual debut certainly have friends who have had their sexual debut so it feels like it's really important to revisit um a lot of those topics from eighth to ninth grade owl kind of what do those things look like in practice um and then a lot i really have a desire too for young adults owl um and and kind of just adult owl in general I have so many friends who've been like when they found out that I was teaching owl were like so can I like buy you a coffee because I never had like sex education um and you know that can actually be um certainly no people for whom not having that has has been dangerous has led to some really serious lifelong you know consequences um and for whom even learning things about like some of the relationship skills stuff, the communication stuff, like that is so important at, at any age. Um, and so there's a real need for that. And a lot of people who like, just don't know where to go to get, get good, um, sexuality information and education that is, that is values based, which is really important, you know, to a lot of people. 
Um, so I'd love to see Owl grow. I'd also uh, love to see, um, and this ties back into the thing, what Gretchen was talking about in the very beginning, which is a broadening of the conversation. So we have this moment where we need to respond to the urgent need of making sure people can access reproductive health care. Um, but there's this larger conversation then of if we are a pro-choice uh, congregation, if we are taking a stand on that, what does that mean aside from the abortion uh, conversation, aside from advocacy and access to abortion? And I think a good example would be last year when the congregation passed a resolution supporting universal health care, right? Having a baby is incredibly expensive. If someone chooses uh, and, and having providing health care for a child is very can be very expensive and, and limited. So um, what does that look like? What does it look like to ensure secure housing for families and children who already um, exist? What does it look like to ensure food security? Um, we have the mobile food bank and sort of this tying together of if we're talking about autonomy, we're talking about the right of someone to determine their own path. Um, to be pro-choice really does include more than just abortion. For someone to really have a choice, they also need to feel like they could, if they wanted to, have a baby and do so in a healthy society and supported environment and have the means to do so. And so I really would love to see that piece come into the conversation at Foothills that yes, pro-choice, absolutely, access to abortion, such a crucial part of that. And there's that flip side. What does the other choice look like? And how do we also support the right of people who can get pregnant to have a true choice, not to feel pushed one way or the other? Thank you. Any final thoughts as we wrap up our conversation? I think I want to add just one general note, which is I think um, the best thing we can do is try to talk and listen to each other about some of these complex questions. And um, in our, it was always difficult with abortion to have conversations across polarized perspectives. It is even more so now it feels dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I, I just wanted to note at the end that it's okay to have different perspectives than everything we've just said. It's that the opportunity to come into conversation with respect and um, with deep, you know, desire to listen and learn and change and grow is the, um, the only requirement in our faith community. So that you know, I welcome hearing from folks that are like, I just, I'm struggling. I have this question, or I'm not sure how I think about this, or I really disagree. Um, as long as it's held with a, a sense of respect and care and a willingness to listen and learn about different perspectives. And I, I would be that, that response with the same intention. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about this and about sort of any, you know, anything that we're talking about in our faith community, it's, um, I, I like bold statements. I like making bold claims. And sometimes that can come across like, then that means everybody has to 
agree with everything that I've just said. And um, I actually mean the opposite. I mean, like, let's have good, good, so- solid opinions that we, and perspectives, convictions that we really care about. But then let's, let's love each other enough and respect each other enough to really listen to somebody's difference about that and not assume um, the worst in that, assume the best in that. I would um, piggyback on what Gretchen said about sort of the, the danger of, of silence um, to make a, a more pointed point, but one that I think I would be remiss in ignoring given that we just had a conversation that talked a lot about teaching sexuality education to children which is there's been a real um, thread in our sort of national narrative of painting people who teach uh, sexuality education to children as dangerous, as groomers, as pedophiles, as all these sort of terrible things. Um, And um, Silence, especially when it comes to talking to children about things that are innate to them is, is dangerous. Like that is where the danger lies, not in having the conversations and providing information, but in not providing it. Um, the research is very clear. If children are not taught about things like consent, who to talk to if someone you know hurts them from a very young age, that gives cover to actual um, abusers. Uh, not talking to young adults and teenagers about things like contraception can lead to, you know, lifelong STIs on, or, or unintended um, pregnancies. Um, it's one thing to have a respectful conversation about what that education should look like or what those conversations should look like. But when we err on the side of silence, we put children at risk. Um, of being taken advantage of, of being abused, of, of not understanding, you know, their own bodies and therefore doing something that puts their health at risk. Um, so I just would lift up and respond to that just because I think that's such a prevalent point in our national narrative and conversation right now that it, it would have been a, a noticeable gap to not address that given what we talked about today. Thank you, Kelsey. And it's such a relief. I mean, I can speak from my own experience as a parent to know that I don't have to do that alone, that we're here in a community together where, you know, we can do OWL together. We can teach OWL together. Our kids are with their peers in all of that learning. Like I don't have to make it up from scratch. And that's such a relief and such a beautiful and important ministry. So I want to just thank you both. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your ministry. I feel like you bring such goodness and life and doors to liberation through what, through what you do at Foothills. So thank you. And thanks for making time for this conversation. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you for having me. What a rich conversation. I feel so lucky to have just been in that space with Gretchen and Kelsey and taken in all of those ideas. I learned so much in this conversation, and I hope that you did too. I want to encourage you to share this episode with anyone who you think might be interested or who might need to hear it, or to just share it out on social media to get these liberating and life-saving ideas out there. So next week, our episode will release a couple of days later than usual, probably on Friday, but this is for a very good reason. 
Reverend Gretchen, who we just heard in today's podcast, Gretchen will be leading the Sunday morning worship service at our Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly this upcoming Sunday. This is a huge honor. It's a really big deal. And we are so proud of Gretchen. And we also know what a powerful preacher she is. And personally, I cannot wait to hear what she has to share with us and with our entire religious movement this Sunday at General Assembly. The availability of that recording is just a little bit delayed. So our podcast will be delayed, but hang in there, look for it. It will be definitely worth a listen. And I'm hoping to squeeze in afterwards a one-on-one interview with Gretchen to kind of unpack the experience together. So thank you. Thank you again for making the time to join this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. I love spending this time with you. I love the discoveries we make together. If you have a moment, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. This helps to boost our ratings, which in turn helps people discover this show when they're in that space looking for something inspiring, something grounding that can help them on their spiritual path. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, just send them a link to this episode, to the podcast, spread the word, and thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It was such a pleasure to be with you today. 